Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. Hello, and thank you for checking out the podcast. Coming up, my weather expert buddy, Bruce Johnson, with the new El Nino number. Serial killer expert, Peter Vronsky, on Bruce MacArthur sentencing in Toronto, but also on a serial killer from right here in Winnipeg. Claire Tancy will join us to talk about her new cookbook, Uncomplicated, and U of M political scientist Chris Adams on Western alienation. Please rate the podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast. And now, the podcast. Bruce Johnson was on yesterday, my weather expert buddy. So was our global news weather specialist, Mike Conkin, because, of course, we were talking about all the snow and the blowing snow and the cold weather. I wanted to get Bruce on just for a couple of minutes here today because the new El Nino numbers are in. Remember the, uh, what was that movie with Steve Martin when the phone book came? And the the new phone book's here, the new phone book's here. And it was, like, stupid. But uh, Bruce gets excited like that. He's a weather geek. He gets excited like that when the new El Nino numbers are in. And, Brian, what are those numbers showing? Is the El Nino continuing to weaken? Well, it is actually continuing to weaken a little bit. It uh, is down to 0.8 degrees above average, which means it's in El Nino, but it was 0.85 last month and 0.89 the month before. So it is going down. It had peaked about two months ago. So it may not have as much of a protective effect on us for the rest of the winter as it has. And that means we may get a few more like these where it gets a little further west. Because remember yesterday I mentioned it was snowing in Seattle. It was snowing in Portland today. So that's that's getting west of the mountains, way west, not penetrating super far south. But it, it gives us a little bit longer cold spell than we would have had otherwise. And these things aren't being pushed off to the east as much as they were or would be with a stronger El Nino. So we're at point eight now for El Nino, a big El Nino year. Like when El Nino was crazy, I don't know, five or six years ago, we had a big El Nino year. What would it have been that year? Just give us a comparison between then a big El Nino, really nice mild winter compared to now at point eight. A big El Nino, one and a half to two and a quarter or two oh, yeah. and a half. On the plus side, that's when you you really notice. You get two and a half, that's a strong El Nino, and that's going to brush most of that cold air off, and we wouldn't have much snow on the ground, and it wouldn't be very cold most of the time. Yeah. I'll tell you, there's something to this, though, because uh, it's interesting how we started out with a fairly mild winter, and then as that El Nino number lessened, right, we start to see more winter weather. Exactly. In fact, that was the thing. It was about 11.15 last night when the number came out. I was was thinking it was going to be lower by the way the weather has been behaving lately. It gave me a clue that the El Nino had probably weakened, and unfortunately I was right. Fortunately for me, because I like to be right, but um, that may not be fortunate for an early spring, and and all the groundhogs would be disappointed that they would probably be wrong. Wrong, right. Yeah, and so so you think that if this continues to weaken then, you don't really believe that we will see an early spring. You think winter may linger. 
Yeah, that could that could definitely happen if the El Nino keeps decreasing in strength, and it really isn't going to protect us and give us a warm early spring. Mm. Um, and one of the things, if you notice this last snow and the one that tonight, is very very cold when it's snowing. Yeah. And models only showing a couple centimeters, but it's actually more than that. It's probably going to be like five or somewhere in that range because that snow is so dry. It's not a ten to one ratio. One centimeter of snow does not equal one millimeter of melt precipitation it's two or three centimeters of snow because this snow is dry has very little moisture in it, and it blows around very easily yeah and it is interesting you're right that we're getting snow while it is so cold that is unusual yeah and when you get snow when it's that cold it doesn't have that because you hear it on you know, whether uh, broadcast sometimes oh it's a 10 to 1 ratio not this time it's not it's more like a 20 or 25 to 1 all right. Well, I wanted to get you on for a couple of minutes. That's interesting. So how often do they put these El Nino numbers out? Once a month or just whenever they feel like it? One, exactly. It's once a month. It's the end of the fall, the, you know, this last month. So this last month I got it, well, again, last night. Normally you get it about around the fourth or fifth of the month. The last month I didn't get it because of the government shutdown. I got that just a week ago. But uh-huh. um, then I thought, yeah, that was. Uh, I'm not going to repeat what I was saying when that <laughs> number wouldn't come up. But it yeah, was I don't do that. English. But anyway, <laughs> uh, I'm just glad this one came up. Yeah, me too. Hey, Bruce, thanks a lot for doing this. I appreciate it, pal. First of all, our guest joining us now on the phone, Dr. Peter Vronsky. He is an author, investigative historian, and a prof at Ryerson University. He is a serial killer expert. Uh, Dr. Vronsky, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. Uh, Hi, how are you doing? I'm excellent. Thanks a lot. Uh, Before we get into uh, our conversation here, I want to start with this Bruce MacArthur guy in Toronto. Let me uh, set the table here for our conversation with this news report. Hang on. MacArthur's sentencing hearing is continuing with many reading out their victim impact statements to the court. Court heard details yesterday about how MacArthur preyed on men from Toronto's gay village for years before he was arrested. Many wept in court as prosecutors provided previously unheard details of the killings. One man spoke about his murdered friend Salim Essen, who lived for periods of time on the streets. He says Essen had taken steps to improve his mental health by enrolling in a peer training program where he learned more about poverty and homelessness and the related challenges. Don Kelly, the Canadian Press, Toronto. So we'll start there, uh, Dr. Vronsky. Earlier on, a few minutes ago, when I was teeing up my show on Jeff Courier's show, I called this guy a, a sick SOB. Your your reaction on this Bruce MacArthur guy in Toronto? Well, definitely sick. Um, any serial killer would be an SOB, of course, uh, in our perception. Um, you know, it's an unusual case. Uh, just in the world of serial homicide in terms of his age. Uh, Most guys his age, um, if they haven't been uh, apprehended, are usually retiring from serial killing. Um, So, you know, this makes him unique that he's in his 60s. The average serial killer starts usually when they're around the age of 27, 28. Hmm. So, um, you know, unfortunately... We'll never know really the full story because having pled guilty, of course, there's not going to be a lot of psychiatric debate. He's not going to mount a defense, right. you know, um, so we're not going to know what, you know, pushed him over that line. 
What else do we know about serial killers, generally speaking? You're surprised that this one's, he's 67, I think, Bruce MacArthur in Toronto. So he's older, that's unusual. What do we know about most serial killers, generally speaking? Um, We know that um, most serial killers, what they're seeking most is uh, control over their victim. That is the primary motive. Um, They'll express that control in many various ways. Um, We know that there's a preponderance of serial killers who report, um, you know, familial breakdown in their childhood, um, uh, abuse and and, and so forth. Um, A lot of serial killers uh, would be classified as psychopaths by, you know, the hair psychopathy test, Mm -hmm. Uh, but not all. And, and really, you know, the mystery with serial killers is, is many of the things that we report about serial killers as children, um, you know, a lot of non-serial killers have that same kind of history. Um, so that X factor, um, you know, what pushes, uh, say, an abused uh, child to later grow up to be a serial killer while, you know, thousands of children are abused without becoming serial killers as adults still remains a mystery to us. Hmm. Do serial killers want to be caught? No, that's a myth. Serial killers uh, go out of their way to avoid detection. Um, So, you know, that's a very popular myth that serial killers are seeking to actually be caught. Um, That's a pure myth. And is it about the sex at all? Because uh, often there are sexual uh, elements of a serial killer and, and what he does with his victims, but yet you say it's about control. But I guess in some sense they could see that as a form of control, I guess. Eh? Absolutely. Um, you know, rape, for example, is not exactly a sexual crime. It's right. a crime of, a, of aggression. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a crime of control over the victim. So, indeed, um, a vast majority of serial killers will express their um, method of control through um, you know, sexual means. And, and, and that begins from childhood. I mean, their fantasies often start as early as five years old, before puberty. Mm. Um, and so gradually those fantasies often um, have to do with control and revenge as well, uh, will get sexualized when they go through puberty. So some of them for, you know, a good 20 years before they actually, when they come to the age of, you know, 25, 26, 27, uh, they come to that average age, uh, you know, before they actually cross the line and act on their fantasy. I want to talk about the Winnipeg serial killer that you've written about, but I want one more question answered here uh, quickly. I've often thought about this, you know, uh, people like Bruce MacArthur get caught, how many serial killers do you think there are out there? Are there many out there that are, we might see murders and not think they're connected to a serial killer, but maybe they are. Are there a lot of serial killers, do you think, out there doing their dastardly deeds and we just aren't aware of them? Well, you know, it depends how, you know, what a lot is. Right. right? It's a relative term. Sure. Um, estimates about how many serial killers there might be out there range from about, you know, 35 to many as 200. Um, and we're talking here about, say, North America. 
So, you know, serial killers are extraordinarily rare. We've only had a few thousand over, you know, a hundred year period. So, you know, there aren't many. Um, but indeed, you know, these kinds of estimate that there might be as many as 35 to 200, and we don't know how many homicides might be actually related to a serial killer that we haven't really identified, made the kind of linkage. You know, the term is called linkage blindness, when, when you don't connect one crime with another, which was a big problem in the MacArthur investigation. They, they could not make that link until very late in the stage of uh, his murders. So, um, you know, we don't know. But overall, it's a rare phenomenon. All right. Uh, finally here, before we run out of time, the Winnipeg serial killer. The name and tell us a bit about him. Uh, he was executed here... Well, Go ahead. Tell us about him. Um, Earl Melson, um, the gorilla man, the gorilla killer, or the dark strangler, um, was uh, notorious. He was actually an American serial killer. He was born and raised in San Francisco um, and just made his way across the country during the 1920s, uh, targeting mostly uh, middle-aged landladies who he would troll for through room for rent advertisements. Um, and then he would show up at, at, at their door and uh, murder them. And, um, you know, I think he killed something like maybe 22 women throughout the 1920s until he came to Canada. And in Winnipeg, uh, he's apprehended and, and um, he's executed in Canada. So, you know, we did, I guess, Canadian law enforcement did a much better job than American law enforcement did in this particular case. And, and of course, it's a very early case of, of, of serial killing uh, from the 1920s, historic case. Well, and he was one of the more prolific serial killers from his execution in the late 20s until it became more common, I guess, or, or more known in the 70s, right? Yes, and 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 twenty-two murders. Um, you know that was that's that's pretty rare overall the history. You know, if you look at the fame of Jack the Ripper, for example, um, you know only five victims. Uh, so compared to um, Earl Nelson, you know he's like four times, three times the amount of victims that uh, Jack the Ripper had, but he's so much less known. Um, and, and I guess that's the difference between, you know, a, a, a case like that breaking in the city like, you know, Winnipeg in the 1920s and London, um, which was the center of, you know, the newspaper industry at that time mm -hmm. um, where it made a bigger story. Right. Uh, yeah. So often, you know, we don't hear about these cases just because of the geography and the particular um, media concentration. Peter, thank you for this. I really appreciate it. Anytime, Hal. Right now, I'm very excited to speak with Claire Dancy. She is the author of her first, and I'm sure it will not be her last, her first cookbook, 
called Uncomplicated. Claire, it is very nice to meet you. It is delightful to be here. Welcome to Winnipeg. Thank you. Sorry we couldn't have less snow and less cold. Listen, I grew up in Montreal. This is nothing. Bring it on. Bring it on. Take your long johns with you wherever you go. Yeah. You're you're from Montreal. You are now in Toronto. I am. As you embark on... uh, Well, listen, how long have you been doing this? This is your first cookbook. This is my first cookbook, but it's been my career. I was the food director at Chatelaine Magazine for many years. Ah, Uh, That's a good gig, eh? It was quite a good gig. Nice yeah. big test kitchen, you know, working in the magazine business. Right. Uh, and I do TV and all that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. But I trained as a chef. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, I also have a degree in English literature. Yeah. A couple of degrees in English literature. That's Which the, helps when you're writing a book. It really does, yeah. in fact. Um, but it's sort of a crooked road to where you end up in the yeah. end. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, two years ago, I decided to start my own business and I really wanted to write a book. And so finally, it does take a long time. We will it is. we will get into this in a moment. I'll, we'll give more details again at the end of this. But you're in Winnipeg doing some cooking demos and I some am. chats. So tell us where you're going to be and when. And I am. I am actually doing a cooking class tonight. At Deluca's, um, I just found out it is actually sold out. Oh, you're kidding! Alas, so I'm well, gonna have next, to come back. I'll be back. I'll be back. Deluca's is fantastic. Oh, I know. Yeah. I don't know how I'm ever gonna get to the to the demo. I'm yeah. just gonna get stuck in the pasta bar. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good though that yeah. it's sold out. So yeah. that's fantastic. Yeah. And the books available everywhere. It's fine available. Bookstores. Yeah, I've been at McNally signing books this morning, and also at Chapters. So if you're looking to get a signed copy, uh, you can hit either of those shops, and of course you can get it at all of your yeah. retailers, online, offline. Sure. If you want me to. Sign Sign it for you. I've got a sticker I could sign and put it in the mail. For Good. You. Yeah. And it's called Uncomplicated Taking the Stress Out of Home Cooking. I was just telling Claire off air, my latest obsession is watching all the recipe videos on YouTube, yeah. right? Yeah. My wife's like, Are you watching those again? And I love the name of the book because. I, I love those old school recipes, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes those ones that have been forgotten that Grammy used to have mm-hmm. because they were simple, right? They were simple because, you know, there's this pervasive idea these days that cooking is hard. You know, we see so much on TV with the reality shows and the yeah. fancy chefs and the Instagram perfect And it pictures. can be hard, but it, it doesn't can. have to be. It doesn't have to be complicated to be delicious. We've been cooking for thousands of generations, yeah. right? So like you said, your mom's recipes, your grandma's recipes, a lot of my mom's and my grandma's recipes are in this book. Yeah. That's the way. I grew up eating. That's the way I grew up cooking. Yeah. And that's the way I cook now. You know, I, like I run a business. I've got a six-year-old. He's screaming for dinner at six o'clock every night. Yeah. So I know how hard it can be to get that home-cooked meal on the table every night. Um, and it doesn't have to be fancy. You don't have to make a separate sauce. You don't have to go to extreme lengths to still eat good home-cooked food. Yeah. And I really love the one-pot stuff, you know, oh, yeah. where it one all pot. goes in one pot, the casserole. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm old school Or when it one comes. pan, put it all one in a pan, pan, throw it in the oven. Yeah. Fantastic. And then clean up so easy, right? Yeah. Do you use the Instapots much? I see those all over the I place. Know. Are they a good item to have in the kitchen? I, I often think, oh, another kitchen gadget. Do I, I really need it? <clears throat> Pardon me. I, I'm not. I haven't been sold on the instant pot yet. Okay. I have tried it. Yeah. I feel like I don't eat enough meat. Yeah. That kind of heavy braised meat yeah. for it to make sense for me. Mm-hmm. And I know people who love them absolutely love them. Yeah. I live in downtown Toronto. My kitchen is about the size of two postage stamps right. licked and put together. Yeah. So yeah, counter space is uh, pretty. It almost costs as much as buying the house. Is yeah, finding yeah. space on the counter for right. a new appliance. So I haven't sort of gone to the instant pot, mm-hmm. um, but I know a lot of people love them. But I still love you know pot roast. Put it in a pot, throw yeah. the lid on it, put it in the oven. Go. That's also really good. Mm-hmm. Slow set it. 
and forget it kind of yeah. cooking. Give me one or two of your favorite recipes out of the book here, just so I get a sense of, let of me what... Tell uh, you, um, let me tell you about two of the recipes that were an instant hit with the readers as soon as it came out. And it was totally... I had no idea. They're both loaves, okay? Mm. So you talk about old school recipes. Yeah. One is meatloaf. Yes. So meatloaf seems to have gone away. Like, it's kind of lost in pop- lots of, lost its popularity. When it comes to uncomplicated cooking, though, that is the gold standard. You put everything together in one bowl, yeah, stir, right. transfer to a loaf pan, and then you put it in the oven. And yeah. then you have an amazing dinner, great leftovers. Well, and you've got leftovers for sandwiches. The and, best. And yeah. everybody loves it. It's comfort food, perfect for this time of year. Yeah. The other recipe that has been such a hit, I can't believe it, it is my lemon and herb salmon loaf. Lemon and herb salmon loaf. Canned salmon. Really? People love canned salmon. I had no idea. It's an old recipe I got from a friend's mom in Nova Scotia. It's really affordable, great way to get fish into the diet without having to go out and buy that fresh fish. Kids love it. It's like canned salmon, some lemon zest, egg, breadcrumbs, you know, a couple of other things you've got in the pantry. Whip it all into that loaf pan, and it's just a really easy, delicious dinner. So I... Didn't know what recipes would be instant hits with the with the readers, um, but those have been two of the big hits. And, of course, the baking. I've got a lot of old-fashioned baking recipes really? in there, which people are loving. Wow. Yeah. I will show those to my wife because mm-hmm. she loves to bake. Uh-huh. She, you have to have a lot of patience to bake, don't you? Well, um, Seems to me you do, anyhow. Only if you're really hungry and then you're like, <laughs> but it's not out of the oven yet. <laughs> no, but there's, you know, you can't do this before that and you've got to do these. To, I don't know. It seems it's, complicated to me. You know what? It's that's a fair, it's a, it's a fair assertion, but I would say that the recipes that I love are the ones that you don't need a mixer for. Yeah. Um, you know, I like to bake when everybody else is asleep, early morning, late night, so it's mm-hmm. bowl and spoon. And, yeah, if you add something in the wrong order, it's not going to make or break the recipe. Uh, yeah. I, I was making a, I've got a Black Forest brownie cookie, it's really lovely, chewy cookie. It's got some uh, dried cherries in it. I was making it last week. Totally forgot the baking soda. Like, just totally. I realized at the end when the cookies were already <laughs> in the oven, I'm like, oh, I never took the baking soda out of yeah. the pantry. Mm. You know what? Still delicious. It was still oh, good. Oh, it's still delicious. They're yeah. cookies. It's chocolatey. You can't go wrong. Yeah. Well, and that's, uh, and, and I'm, uh, I used to, years ago, I was the host of a cooking show here in Winnipeg on TV. And I used to fill in on radio, too. There was a mm-hmm. cooking show here on CGOB back in the day. Now, I, I'm not a bad cook in the kitchen, mm-hmm. but I was kind of the person that kept it rolling along. I had a, <laughs> I had experts like yeah. you that were, you know, doing the the real uh, uh, the real cooking. And and I liked it. And I, and I loved the simplicity, uh, the simple recipes, the ones that were real easy to do. Those mm-hmm. were the those were the uh, the good ones. Mm-hmm. And, and I think sometimes people can find cooking when you say, hey, you know, you want to cook dinner or they find it intimidating, but totally. it doesn't need to be, right? Because totally. it, it's yep. about just doing it and making it your own and trying things. And, and if you mess up, you know, hot tip, you got three more chances tomorrow. Yeah. Like, it's okay. Right. And so don't be afraid to make mistakes. It's not brain surgery. You're not flying a jet full of people. Like, yeah. you can make a mistake. That is all right. Yeah. Um, so don't be afraid of that. And don't be intimidated. And don't think that you have to have special equipment or special mm-hmm. knowledge or fancy ingredients. Humble ingredients, a little... You know, a few pieces of equipment, and you can have yourself a tasty home-cooked yeah. meal. Claire, nice to meet you. Such a pleasure to be here. Sorry that it sold out at DeLuca's tonight, but I hey. I promise to come back. Enjoy DeLuca's. Promise to tell me when you're coming back. Will it's do. been a real pleasure. The number of people who would vote for a Western Canada party, the weakest here in Manitoba at 27%. But across the West, it's 35%. And basically, that ties with the other parties. 
here in Manitoba and uh, also right across the West. So Tories, Liberals, NDP, and this hypothetical Western party, if it existed. Western alienation. It's growing again, on the rise. Again, we've certainly seen it in the past, right? What do you think? 204-780-6868, hal at cjob.com, or leave me a message on the talk line, 774-TALK. We're going to talk about it with political scientist Chris Adams from the University of Manitoba in a moment here. Jeff Courier on CJOB earlier had on Ian Holiday from Angus Reid talking about this survey, and Ian admitted to Jeff he was surprised at the numbers. Didn't expect to see certainly the level of, um, you know, support. The, the hypothetical Western Canada Party is leading or tied for the lead in each of the four westernmost provinces in this country um, in this, you know, hypothetical horse race that we put in front of our respondents. And that was not something that I was expecting, but something that my some of my older colleagues who were um, politically aware and, and, you know, around in the uh, late 80s and early 90s with the rise of the Reform Party, they uh, they felt like this is something that they have seen before. You know, this is coming at the end of a long study that we have done on Western Canada, Western alienation and Western identity. And uh, and they feel as though this number is actually quite, quite believable in terms of the, the number of Western Canadians who feel as though they're not being treated fairly by the federal government and feel as though they would benefit from a party that represented their interests. Ian Holiday from Angus Reid. Let's get Chris Adams on here, political scientist, University of Manitoba. Hi, uh, Chris, how are you? Hi, Hal, pretty well. You? Good. Excellent. Thanks for doing this. You know, uh, when the Reform Party was around, I was in Alberta, yeah. and I certainly did feel the Western alienation then. I don't, yes. I don't really feel it now here in Manitoba, and it seems like Manitoba is the weakest of the provinces when it comes to this. Were you surprised at all by this? Well, I, I'm looking at the, the numbers here, Hal, with uh, Angus Reid's um, um, press release. And, and just to be transparent, I was a vice president with the Angus Reid Group, a uh, company that Angus Reid used to head up uh, some years ago. So um, I have some connection personally to right. Angus Reid. But yeah. with that being said, um, when you look at the numbers in the press release and on the global uh, news news website, the Manitoba has the less dark numbers. That is, three-way race between the so-called West Western Canada Party and uh, the PCs and the Liberals, kind of a three-way race with the NDP behind, whereas they really are strong when you look at BC, Alberta, and Saskatchewan. And I, th- I think this, this, you know, this idea of this imaginary party uh, leading the other parties and the further Western parties is a sign of the big regional issues that have been percolating uh, during the past two years with uh, Justin Trudeau as the Prime Minister that haven't really resonated so much in, in Manitoba. And I'm Thinking in particular uh, the collapse of oil prices and how that's affecting Saskatchewan and Alberta quite a bit. And uh, the other one is the pipeline debate that affects into British Columbia. And the, as you know, the Trudeau government is going ahead with with the pipeline uh, against some of the wishes of those in B.C. So there's some actual issues that are regional in, na- in nature, uh, which are percolating, and they're having more of, an, a, more of a significant impact in B.C., Alberta, and Saskatchewan. And those issues really aren't uh, in, in Manitoba. 
And stuff like the carbon tax doesn't help either, right? I mean, that's a, a big one for us here in the province of Manitoba. We don't like that. Yeah, I guess, yeah, I mean, that would probably indicate why there there is just over a quarter of Manitobans who say they would vote for, for the Western Canada Party. And I think partly uh, there's, there's in the other polls that I've seen, is there's a decline of liberal support in Manitoba and across the prairies compared to the last federal election. And that's not surprising. Uh, those numbers are starting to snap back to, to traditional patterns of, of more right-of-center support over, over the Liberal Party. But one thing I do want want to say, Hal, is that here we're talking about an imaginary party, Western Canada Party, and it doesn't have anything else to it. it we don't know what the can- local candidates would be if they right. were to run. What they would stand uh, the for. Liberal- who the leader would be, what, you know, what, and, and a regional party, Western Canada party would be right of center. We can't imagine it being a left-wing party. Uh, so, so it has certain elements to it, but because it's a, it, it's a party with no, without any meat right now, it's just put forward in a poll. That means that people are more willing in a poll probably to say, yeah, I would support that, but they don't know really what the flesh and blood would be of that it's party. It's a good point. Yeah. 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 No, that's a great point. Absolutely. You know, the Reform Party came close to being, what were they, a seat or two short of being the official opposition? Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I don't think we would ever see a Western Party do something like that again, would we? I I mean, it's sort of a hypothetical. You're right. We're talking about something that doesn't really exist, but I just don't see that happening again. Yeah, Hal, you know, uh, it's good that you raised this because the big impetus to, to supporting the Reform Party and their founding convention was here in Winnipeg uh, after a, a preliminary convention further out west. But uh, the CF-18 deal was originally uh, um, the awarding of, of uh, the manufacturing of or the maintenance of, of j- uh, fighter jet planes was expected to come to a, a better bid in Winnipeg. Right. Instead, it went to uh, Quebec. So there was a and that was under Mulroney's uh, progressive concern. Conservatives, uh, um, the government then was seen as balancing between Quebec's interests and and uh, Western Canada interests, and the GST had just been introduced. So there are a lot of things really that were that were making Manitobans, in particular, um, not happy with the uh, governing uh, party. Which it, a different scenario this time around. Uh, the other thing too, before the Reform Party was founded, there was the Core Party, and I don't know if you remember them. No, but but the Confederation of Regions Party, and oh, they yes, grew right. out of a very strong anti-French language uh, position. It was a big issue in Manitoba of the, the uh, uh, French language services, a constitutional debate. And the core party was really a, a Western separatist type of party. And uh, they, they came in second in every non-urban cons- riding in Manitoba in the 88 elections. So there was a, a groundswell occurring prior to the Re- Reform Party, when, when uh, um, this was bubbling up. Hmm. Yeah, it's, you know, it's funny to sort of sit and talk about this. You're right. We don't know what this Western Party would stand for. I mean, we'd have to assume it would be, as you said, right of center. Yeah. I, I just don't see it happening. Um, yeah. Because, and the one thing that this survey found, too, is that there's alienation right across the country. Other regions in eastern Canada or central or eastern Canada have feelings of alienation too. They're just not as strong. Is that maybe the yeah. sign of a of a bad government or a government that's not paying attention to voters, do you think? Or is this something that's bubbled up for a long time? 
I, I think it's a long-term pattern, but the interesting thing, part of the study, too, is that Angus Reid um, is, is comparing some of the data from the 1991 study, I think it was 91, that they did uh, uh, some years ago when the Angus Reid group was, was operating. And so you'll be able to see some tendencies, but there are some tendencies, especially in B.C. and Alberta, that look like things have become a little bit harsher, a little bit more uh, um, disconcerting for those who want to see more of a national movement rather than a regional movement. So so looking at the tracking data, there, there's something really seems to be happening. But I, th- I think we'll really see what happens when uh, like we're going into an election in, in the, the fall of yep. this year. And and I suspect that the progressive, cons- not the progressive conservatives, the conservative party of Canada under Andrew Scheer will be looking very closely at these numbers and will seek to pick up uh, uh, those people who are Western Canada party supporters of this thing. And the other thing, too, is there are two demographics to look at in the in these data. One is that the older you are, the more you would support the, this idea of a Western Canada party, and that gets back to an earlier discussion that you had a clip about uh, um, older people remembering this Western Canada concept and yeah. the Reform Party, etc. And the other thing is that the NDP supporters are less inclined to support this this type of a party. So, um, but I I think that these numbers are good for Andrew Scheer and the Conservative Party of Canada because. I think they can really uh, pick up on on some of the support. Chris, thanks a lot for doing this. I appreciate it. Thanks, Hal. Enjoy the weather. Yeah, you too. You too. Chris Adams, political scientist at the University of Manitoba, joining us on this. And Mike has been patiently waiting. I want to get Mike on uh, before we take a break here because Mike uh, tells uh, my producer, Sky Neller, that he was a Reform Party candidate in 1993. Mike, I'm anxious to hear what you think of these numbers about Western alienation. Um, it's, a, it's a very successful you know, strategy by the Liberal government to put the put, try to get this stuff out there. Well, this, no this came this came from, but, but hang on a mic. This came from Angus Reid. This didn't come from the Liberals. It came from an independent polling company, Angus Reid. Okay, well, yeah. just, just so, what is the, what has our federal government been doing for the past two years? Divide the regions. Why do they want to divide the regions to get to split vote? And I ran in '93 and in '97, by the way. All right, and. And what happened when when we Reform Party was created, it basically ensured a liberal government ad infinitum, because you split the vote sure. on the on the right side. You know, some of the policies that we came, that came, that were in the Reform Party were really good. Some of them were not really good. Mm-hmm. You know, balanced budget legislation. You know, many pro- many provinces and you know municipal governments adopted that. That red legislation. So you 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 may not have formed a government, but you still won through your policies being adopted. Yeah. Um, I look at, you know, right now with Maxime Bernier, and he wants to set up his own party because he wants to be king. It's not about it's not about having, you know, uniformity throughout the country. It's about who gets to be in charge. But it, Bouchard was the same yeah. thing. You know, he when he couldn't be when he couldn't get past Brian Mulroney, he he for the the Bloc Québécois. Hey, Mike, let me let me let me take it back to the poll though. I want to. I'm I'm curious because you ran for the Reform Party in the '90s, and I I want to ask you: Do you think that Western alienation is as strong out there here in Manitoba as these numbers would indicate? No. 
Yeah, I, I no, was surprised. I, I was surprised at the numbers too. I can see it in you know provinces west of here more than here, but even at twenty seven percent, we're the weakest of the western provinces in this survey, uh, this poll. Twenty seven percent say here in Manitoba they would vote for this hypothetical western party. That surprises me. That's over a quarter of people. Yeah, but that's just that's just a you know a push button issue on a, on a very specific thing. You know. Do the rest of Canada, like, do we want to be not part of Canada? Do we not want to be part of Confederation? I can remember when we, when we all flew out to Quebec when they were having their referendum, and there were literally thousands of people migrating to Quebec trying to show Quebec that just because your, gov- your elected officials are cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, the people of Quebec matter to the rest of us Canadians. Right, yeah. And, you know, and I feel the same way now at 53 years of age as I did back when I was 27 years of age. Yeah. The people of Quebec matter. The people of Canada matter to us. Yeah. The elected people, there are the elected people, and they're doing what they need to do to stay elected. You know, we have a federal election coming up in October. Yep. And how many more months of government really are there when you get down to it? The mm. Ottawa shuts down for the tourist season very shortly, so the, the MPs have to be off the hill by before the end of May, actually. Yeah. So how many more weeks of government of legislation are you really going to get before they all go on the barbecue circuit? Yeah. And just to be maybe six weeks, six weeks of government left. And just to be clear, um, just because somebody says, yes, I would vote for a Western party. Yes. I feel alienated does not mean they don't want to be part of Canada. This is more like a cry for, Hey, we want some attention over here. And that's why these people are saying to Angus Reed, yes, I'd vote for a Western party. Yes. I'm feeling alienated by the politicians in Ottawa. But Mike, listen, I got to run. Thanks a lot for the call. I appreciate it. Hal Anderson Afternoons, the podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.